0: Right, everybody. Welcome to Remnant. How are we doing? Good. Fantastic. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. I'm glad you're here. It's good to be in God's house this morning, right? Yeah. Great. Yeah we we had a really great service last night, and you can just almost feel like the spirits just moving this morning as well. And um, I uh, um, I'm always reminded every time I come here, first of all, just how blessed we are to be here. Um, uh, just in case you're not remembering, Christmas Eve will be our third anniversary of uh, being together in this building. And, and here's the thing, um, you know, almost every moment of every day, this building is being used for God's purposes. We wanted to create a church where hurting people could come, where homeless people could come, where the people Jesus, his heart was for, would come and feel welcome, and I think we're we're well on the way to doing that and it's been just an incredible experience how God has provided not only this building for our worship but the cafe and all the ministries that we do the showers the food everything for those who are less fortunate and this time of year is a time when we have to remember that right it's a difficult time for a lot of people particularly if they're on the streets or or they're struggling but i also want to remind you that within our church family it's a difficult time for people so if you're having struggles if you're having Financial challenges. If there's anything going on where you need our help, we're here to help you. Don't be too prideful to ask for help if you need it, okay? Now, we just finished a series on the sovereignty of God. And basically, we spent four weeks answering the question did we choose God or did God choose us? And so if you missed that, I would encourage you to go back to our website. You can go to Frank Bible Truth, it's on the podcast, it's on uh, the uh, YouTube channel. Uh, But basically, we talked about how God is sovereign, and at the same time, we have free will. And we talked a lot about God's plan and mission for mankind. Throughout Scripture, God is revealing, foretelling, and accomplishing His mission on earth. Every moment ever recorded in human history has been ordained and accomplished under the sovereign authority of God. He's working out His plan. But in that series, We talked about the difference between God's perspective and man's perspective. God knows the outcome of everything. And we don't. We we often speak of future. He often speaks of future events as if they're done because from his perspective, they are. He's not limited by time, but we haven't yet experienced them. When God looks at us, he's watching a rerun, essentially. He knows the outcome. He knows who we will become. And it's certain. It's not like he thinks it might happen. He knows what's going to happen. And that's exactly how many of us look at the Christmas story. I mean, honestly, we think we know the outcome. And in many ways, we do. Picking up the Bible at Christmas time can be a lot like watching a rerun. It can be like watching Frosty the Snowman or Charlie Brown Christmas. Oh, it's that time of year again. It's time to watch these things. You know the story. You know the outcome. It's enjoyable. It makes you feel warm and fuzzy. It's tradition and it feels good. You don't sit around and wonder when you see Frosty head to the North Pole because this is a rerun for you. You know what's going to happen. But there is a time for you when it was new and fresh and and you almost could mouth today, no money, no ticket, almost as he's about to say it because you've watched it so many times, you know what he's going to say. So many of us read the Bible story about the arrival of Jesus, and as much as we want to be blown away with wonder, we realize that it's a rerun for us, and worse, we have access to the sequels, we know what's going to happen after this child is born, we know what happens in his life, and so for many of us, we say, well, you think his birth is incredible, wait till you see what happens, We read about those first Christmas morning and we read about how they're excited and they're full of joy and they're full of wonder and honestly, we don't connect with it because it's like we're watching a rerun. The birth of Jesus is cool, but what he does when he's here is even cooler. And we can't undo what we know about who he's gonna become and what he's gonna do and what he's gonna mean in our lives. It's hard to us to get amped up about his arrival when we've read about and know about his incredible departure. So it's easy for us each Christmas to go into autopilot, to sing the songs, to read the stories, to attend the services, and really never connect with the wonder that happens because it's like we're watching a rerun. It's what we did last year, and it's what we did the year before that, and the year before that, and the year before that. It's the same passages. It's in the same two Gospels. It's, we read it and we just look at it again and go, oh, yeah, that's cool. But what if we could get Christmas amnesia? What if we could go back and experience Christmas the way that they did on that first morning? What if we could go back and try to put ourselves in the first century, in their circumstances, knowing only what they knew, and experience this birth of God, this God child the way they did? What if we could do that? I want you to imagine that you know nothing about the Messiah. You know nothing about what's going to happen in his life. That's hard to do, right? Because you've seen the answer. Suppose you're living in the time of the Assyrian and Babylonian invasion of the Holy Land. It's about 600 B.C. Jesus won't be here for 600 more years. But we've studied this many times, how the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom tore themselves apart from each other. They had essentially a civil break. Ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south. All the tribes were rejecting Jesus, I mean God. All the tribes had turned their back on God. And God had warned them and warned them and warned them through the prophets that if they did not turn back, he would wipe out their land. And first, he took care of the um, northern kingdom with the Assyrians. The Assyrians came through. They were brutal. The 12 tribes that have rejected God, 10 of them were up in the north, and the Assyrians, God allowed to come through and wipe them out. God's wrath for their many sins was being delivered to them in the dissolution of life as they knew it. You see, a hundred years or so ago, there'd been a northern kingdom, 10 tribes. Now they're gone. No, I mean, really gone. Nobody knows where they went. 10 tribes of Israel in the north, Invasion by the Assyrians, and now they're not there anymore. They've been dispersed across the world. The Assyrians had taken them to foreign lands. Nowhere to be found. They're God's covenant people, and they're lost forever. Only God knows where they went. So the people living in the south are looking north. They see the Assyrians, this horrible army to the north. They see the Babylonians to the east. They're about to take out each other, and whoever's in the middle is going to get wiped out. But they believe in the south that God punished the Assyrian north because they weren't following God. And the southern people were so full of themselves, they couldn't see that it's got to happen to them too. It's not too different from our nation. We can't keep doing what we're doing disobeying God, slaughtering babies, not doing what we're supposed to be doing, ignoring His holiness, ignoring His wrath, having no fear of Him, and expect Him for the first time in human history to stand back and go, yeah, but that's the United States. i got to protect them. No, His wrath has got to be coming. It's part of His nature. And the ten tribes of Israel, they had seen it in the north. It was brutal. It was ugly. They left scars on people. And now the prophets are saying the same thing is going to happen to the people in the south, in Judea, in Jerusalem of all places. Only this time, the prophets say it's going to be the Babylonians. They're ruthless, they're godless, and they're bloodthirsty. The idea that God could use people like that to bring his wrath was almost unacceptable. And yet God's word had told the people living in the south in 600 B.C., you saw what happened to the Assyrians from the Assyrians, same thing's going to happen to you from the Babylonians, unless you repent. We know our nation's turned away. We, we know a righteous and just. God can't ignore what we've done, but God has always blessed us. They can say it, we can say it. They would say, but wait a minute, our capital, our city is Jerusalem. We're his people. He has a covenant with us. Yeah, we're unrepentant and stiff-necked, but God can't give up on us. We're Israelites. We're the last two tribes left. He's got to protect us. Yeah, we've gone too far this time, but God has patience, right? It's not going to run out. The prophets speak of one day. One day in the future, God will save a remnant of us, a group of us. There'll be a group that means right now in this place, for those living in the south, God's wrath was coming. They couldn't avoid it. It was going to happen. Isaiah 11, 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Speaking of the Messiah. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. From Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel, the northern kingdom, and gather the dispersed of Judah, the southern kingdom, from the four corners of the earth. What God's telling him is yes, in my just wrath, I do have to bring judgment on you. You have turned from me, turned from me, turned from me, and now the punishment's coming. But I want you to know it's not absolute and it's not complete. There will be a remnant. There will be a group of people who hold on to the word no matter what. And those people, I will gather. I mean, you don't know where they went. The northern kingdom dispersed across all these places, four corners of the world. But God says, I know where they are. And in a day in the future, I'm bringing them back. So even though you're going through horrible circumstances right now, and even though, yes, you have to go through them, you can know with hope that I'll keep my promise. God will gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the world. But the people reading that in Isaiah's time, they would have said, well, that sounds great, but that means we're about to be wiped out. Yeah, it might be great for the grandkids of some of us, but right now, God's wrath is coming. And then some of the prophets are saying that God will include the Gentiles, the pagans. They, they had to be stunned by that. We're his people. We're the nation of Israel. And God's going to replace us with Gentiles, pagans. And God also made a promise. He said there'd be a deliverer that comes, someone who will save us, someone who will set up an everlasting peace, someone who will rule Israel as King David did back in the days of peace. He's the promised one. He's the Messiah. But the prophets have given us clues about him. He'll be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He'll be from the tribe of Judah. That's a good thing because it's one of the two that are left. He'll be an heir to King David's throne. His throne will be an everlasting one. And everything he does, he'll be anointed by God. He'll spend some time in Egypt. The prophets tell us that his throne will be an everlasting one, but he'll be called a Nazarene. The prophets say he will be preceded by Elijah. And a forerunner will announce his arrival. He'll save us from our sins. we got plenty of those. But now the prophet Isaiah is revealing more about this Messiah, this Savior. It's as if God is pouring out hope through Isaiah because we have so little of it right now. Our world is falling apart. Our nation is turning away from God. We know God's got to bring his wrath, but we don't have the hope. And God says, you know what? I want you to know the future Because in the future that I know, there is hope. It's a different picture than the one you're experiencing. Yes, you're about to be invaded and destroyed, but God promises us that one day, one day, we will see Messiah come. No matter how bad things get, no matter how dark it gets, no matter how horrible the world gets, one day Messiah is coming back for us. For them, one day Messiah is coming for the first time. And the times are very similar. But some of what Isaiah said just absolutely confused them. Listen listen to this. Isaiah says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. For a first century, 6 BC person, that's crazy talk. God's going to be with us. And he's going to be born as a son, as a baby. The virgin can't get pregnant, much less become a mother, conceived and bear a son. No, not possible. Everyone knows how you get pregnant and virgins don't get pregnant. And pregnant women and moms are no longer virgins. Second, his name means God with us. God can't be with us. Look around. Everything's filthy. Look at where we are. God could never come to this place. How could God be with us? God can't be with us. He can't be born a son. He's not human. He's holy. He's in heaven. It's as if God, if he actually came to earth, he'd light up the skies. He'd flood us with his majesty. He'd bring earthquakes and dark clouds just like he did on Mount Sinai there's no way God would come here to this filthy place as a baby. They couldn't imagine it. A child is born and now God is with us? Maybe this child's going to be surrounded by one heck of an angelic army. But this makes no sense. Could it be that Isaiah's just losing it? I mean, he makes some crazy claims about this Messiah and he expects us to believe them. He said he's going to be a light Get this, the Gentiles, the pagans. Light means understanding, revelation, awareness. What does our God have to do with pagans? He's the Jewish God. He destroys women, children, armies. He wiped out pagan nations. He didn't even want them to breathe anymore. And now Isaiah says he's going to come for them. Yeah, right. Isaiah says he'll be called a Nazarene and he'll bring light to Galilee. That's way up north. That used to be the northern kingdom. Now it's the Assyrians. Messiah would be in Jerusalem. That's where God belongs. That's his city. That's where David was. That's where the temple is. If God ever returned to earth, he'd have to go to Jerusalem. That's where his home is. If God was really with us, he'd be in his city. The same place David ruled from. Every time Isaiah opens his mouth, he makes less sense. The Messiah, he says, will be silent before his accusers. What accusers? Who on this planet could accuse God? Who could possibly accuse the Messiah of anything? He'll be king, sovereign king. Accusers of the king are killed. They don't get to stand in the public courts and accuse somebody, they're killed. Who's going to let someone, stand in front of an almighty king, God with us, and accuse him of anything, and then live through it. It made no sense to them. And Isaiah says, when they're doing this ridiculous thing, he's going to be silent. What kind of king is silent when people are accusing him of something? That's when they go out. That's when they take him out. Isaiah says, this silent Messiah... God with us would be spit upon. Spit on a king? Strike the king? Not just the king, but the eternal anointed king of God. This one sent by God, may be surrounded by God's army, is going to be spit upon and ridiculed. Isaiah, you're out of your mind. This can't be possible. How in the world could this be true? Isaiah says he'll be killed with criminals. Not just killed, but stretched out somehow in torture. And then buried with the rich. What? What kind of eternal king gets killed? What kind of eternal king gets buried? What kind of eternal Messiah allows people to kill them and bury them? Maybe this Messiah stuff is just some kind of government propaganda thing to keep us calm while we're about to be destroyed. I mean, you have to understand how crazy this must have sounded to them. One thing's for sure, if a virgin conceived and brought forth a baby, a baby who somehow is going to spend time in Egypt and come from Galilee and be called of all things a Nazarene, forget about the spitting, dying, and burying, just a virgin giving birth would be enough for the whole world to know that this has to be the Messiah. I mean, seriously, if a virgin truly conceived and gave birth, that would be all the proof we ever need that God's doing this. Who could argue against that? But Isaiah said one thing that made everybody wonder about his sanity. Maybe he'd finally cracked under the pressure. Maybe being a prophet was too much. He said God told him this. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He will put him to grief. Sovereign God crushes his own Messiah? How does that make sense? The Jewish people had tons of prophecies about the coming Messiah. The problem was most of them made no sense to them. At the time of Messiah's arrival came closer, They learned more, and anticipation was beginning to build. They knew he was coming. Much like we know Jesus' return to us is coming. They were in very similar circumstances to us. I don't know what the future is for our nation. I don't know what the future is, but the Bible tells me it's going to get worse. And my only hope is looking to see Jesus come. That's exactly where they are. We don't know what's happening. The Babylonians are on our border. We have sinned. Our nation has turned from God. God's wrath is coming. But God says he's going to send a Messiah. Even though it made no sense, as it got closer and closer, anticipation began to build. The prophets foretold of the Messiah's arrival at the temple on a very specific day. Daniel and others had given clues the prophets and told people, on this day, the Messiah is going to walk into the temple and proclaim himself as the Lamb of God. They knew that day. It was coming. It was in about 50 years, 40 years, 30 years. It's getting closer. It's got to happen soon. The Messiah has to be coming to earth because we are told by the prophets, by God, that he's going to present himself to the temple. That day is marked on our calendar with a big red X. We're going to be lining the streets waiting for him. And here's the weird thing. This king, Isaiah says, is going to come into Jerusalem on a donkey. How could we miss that? I mean, if he was actually born from a virgin and he grew up and he became our Messiah, how could we miss? If he comes in on a donkey, he's the dude. King of the world on a donkey. But still, that day is marked on the calendar a few decades away. The prophet Micah said he'd be born, there it is, a baby, in Bethlehem, place of bread. And Jeremiah said young children would be massacred there, right? How crazy is this? He's born in Bethlehem, and then Micah tells us in the same city that he's born, children are going to be slaughtered. The psalmists have now confused us even more. They said that the Jewish king, our Messiah, our Savior would be rejected by his own people. That's us. How could we reject our own Messiah? They said he'd be called the Son of God and that we would call him the Son of God and then reject him. He's our Messiah. He's the one God sent. How could God's people reject their Messiah? The psalmist says children will praise him and adults will betray him. He'll be falsely accused. He'll be hated without cause. His hands and feet will be pierced. What does that even mean? We we don't know what that means. Guards will gamble for his clothes. All while the Messiah is praying for his enemies. The psalmists make crazy claims, but they're musicians. They're kind of out there sometimes. They said that this Messiah is going to resurrect from the dead and he's going to ascend to heaven. He's going to sit at the right hand of God. Things are crazy. The Babylonians are about to destroy us. The northern 12 tribes are gone. Ten tribes are gone. We don't know where they are, but we know we're next. All this stuff about Messiah seems crazy. It seems everyone, including the prophets and Isaiah, have gone bad. God better come back before there's nothing left. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In the fullness of time. I love that term. It's like the moment is so pregnant that it's got to bust forth. It can't come one second sooner. It can't come one second later. It's the absolute moment of time when God said, now. Now I'm stepping into my creation. Now the kingdom of God is coming back to earth. Now the light of the world is in the world. The light is there, and the darkness can't overcome it. The moment is right now. A time ordained by God even before He created us. That's where everybody was on this first Christmas. They didn't know what we knew, they didn't have the rerun. All they had was the promise of a future event and a bunch of crazy promises that made no sense to them. And worse, before Jesus' arrival, the prophets had been silent for 400 years. Not one word from God. Not one miracle, not one blessing, nothing. 400 years. Seven or eight generations, and nobody's even heard from God. God. It's about as dark as it can get. People are about as far away from God as they can be. There's been no revelation, just silence. People were whispering among themselves, he must have given up on us. We must have gone too far. Maybe he forgot his promise. Maybe he forgot the covenant that he made. Maybe God finally hardened our hearts. Maybe he gave us over to our debased minds to do what we've been doing. Maybe he's not going to save us. God promised he'd never flood the world again, but he might let us self-destruct. He might let us implode. He might let us destroy ourselves. 400 years of spiritual darkness. God used to be with us. We were his people, but now, just crickets, nothing. Haven't seen or heard a word. Would Messiah still come? Thus far, each day, bringing more and more doubt. Thus far, more and more people look at each other going, it's not happening. It was a pipe dream. He's not coming. And yet, all we can do is trust God and not lean on what we see, but lean on our faith and our promise and his claim to promise. Remember what Isaiah told us, But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time, he's made a glorious way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. What does that mean? I'm glad you asked. There are two northern tribes of Israel, and two of the tribes of the ten, one's called Zebulun, one called Naphtali. They were destroyed. They were completely annihilated by the Assyrians. They are in anguish. They got the brunt of the Assyrian assault. And what the prophet is saying is, look, do you remember how horrible it was in the north? Do you remember what happened when those two tribes got attacked? Those were the bad days. Almost all of them were tortured and killed. God's wrath was all over those two tribes. We honestly don't know where they are. We don't know if they survived or not. No doubt God scorched their land. But Isaiah is saying there's coming a time in that same land that was torched and scorched, there's coming a time when there's going to be a glorious celebration and they're actually going to celebrate. Galilee of the nations. What does that mean? Well, sometimes called upper Galilee. Remember, Galilee's in the north. Galilee of the nations. It's another way of saying Galilee of the Gentiles. It was a derogatory term. It was a negative term. It was similar to Samaria. Samaria. When you read Galilee of the Nations, it's someone reminding you that these are pagan people. You see, one of the reasons these two tribes were attacked by God and scorched is they specifically allowed pagans to stay in the land and intermarry with them, whereas the other eight tribes did not. God's justice is just. It's similar to Samaria. see, in the northern part, they're as close to the Gentile nations as they can be, and it turns out in these two tribe areas, there were a lot of caves and caverns, and they couldn't run everybody out. So they let them stay against God's direction, and they begin to intermingle with them and bring in false gods. Some stayed, intermarried, intermingled, and they began to bring pagan practices into the northern part of Galilee where these two tribes were. They were far from Jerusalem. And consequently, the influence of religion seemed to have waned from them. The true religion was in great measure lost on them and they started replacing the true religion, their return to Jerusalem for the feast, those kind of things. These two tribes begin to, with great measure, bring in superstition, spiritual ignorance. And in the New Testament, they're spoken of essentially is rude and ignorant. So when you see these two tribes mentioned, they're the example of the two worst of the 12 who caught the brunt of God's wrath first and foremost and most forcefully because of the way they had done when they took over the land God gave them. Isaiah 9.2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light and those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light shone. That's us. They they would say, we've been walking in spiritual darkness for 400 years. We haven't heard from God at all. If Messiah is coming, he's got to come soon. It's obvious he has to come. We've walked in darkness, but our nation is now in a land of deep darkness. Those in the south are looking, going, look, we saw what happened to the north. That was dark. What's about to happen to us is deeply dark. We need some light of hope at the end of these 400 years and Isaiah promises them a light's coming. In the southern kingdom, they're in darkness, and at the time of Isaiah's writing, Galilee of the Nations was the epitome of the darkest dark. The inhabitants of that region of Galilee, they were far from the capital. They were intermingled with heathens. They were rude, they were uncultivated in their manners and their language. There were two groups of people that the southern people in Judah absolutely could not stand, the Samaritans and the Gentile, the, the uh, tribes of the north, Galilee of the north. In addition, those in the south had enormous pride. They believed that God had saved them, rescued them because they were the true tribe. They, they really believed that they were doing what God wanted them to do, even though they looked around and that nobody hardly was doing what God wanted them to do. Very similar to where we are now. People just ignoring how far from God we've run. The Assyrians brought their wrath on Galilee of the nations. And the people in the south didn't see it as a warning. They saw it as God's righteous punishment in their arrogance. This disdain for the north and Galilee would carry on 500 years later in Jesus' day. Nazareth was in the middle of these northern tribes. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip says, Come and see. What he's saying is, look, these are the worst of the worst. How could anything good come from this place? Mark, to Peter, the young lady. Again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders said to him, certainly you're one of them, for you're a Galilean. That's not a nice term. It's not like how wonderful it is when someone goes, you're a Texan, aren't you? And you go, yes, sir, I am. No, they're saying you're a Galilean. Just by where you're from, you should probably be arrested. Light is an emblem of knowledge and understanding of the Scriptures, but it's also a sign of joy and rejoicing and deliverance. It stands opposed to moral darkness, no times of judgment and calamity. It's it's unfortunate, in my view, the way they translated this particular verse. If you look at this verse, the darkness and the deep darkness comes from a specific Hebrew word. The same word in Psalm 23, it's Samomet, Samoet. In David's Psalm, it's translated shadow of death. Yea, though I walk through the Samomet, through the shallow of death, I will fear no evil. This verse could have correctly been translated The people who walked in the shadow of death have seen a great light. It has a richness to it that I think is missed by deep darkness. There's something about connecting the shadow of death, that you're walking in the shadow of death and all of a sudden you see a great light. The oppressive shadow of death came over people every day. They knew what that looked like. I've seen it every day at the hospital. It literally is a shadow of death. They stopped becoming themselves. It just kind of comes over them. They're still breathing. They're still alive, but you can tell. The death process has started. It's a shadow. The same way the Messiah is coming to people who are walking in that shadow. He's going to step into their darkness. He's going to step into their oppression. They're desperate to see light, just some kind of hope at the end of their gloomy tunnel. Matthew would later reference these words in Isaiah. And in doing so, he links these two passages. Let me explain that to you. He repeats the words Zebulun and Naphtali, which is a linkage. When you read two words like that in that order, and you know another scripture that has them in the same order, it's the Hebrew way of telling you to connect the verses. Okay. Jesus is going to Capernaum, to Galilee of the nations, to reach the nations. Don't miss that. When Jesus is on his way to Capernaum, he's going to the Galilee of the nations. He's going to the place and he's going to establish his base camp in the middle of everything that's bad. He didn't take the easy road. He went to where the trouble was. He is the light that Isaiah spoke of. Now look at what Matthew says. Now when he heard John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, Whoa. We've seen that before. That's what Isaiah talked about. This is the worst of the worst. So that what was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah may be fulfilled. That's what I just said. In the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, if the people, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and those dwelling in the region... And shadow of death on them, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. When these two verses link together, through unusual wording, they draw attention to each other. They tell you these two verses connect. Shadow of death. Zebulun and Naphtali link Isaiah 9, Matthew 4, and Psalm 23. Those three verses are linked by those linkages. It's an invitation by God. Take these three verses and dig. You see, Isaiah said there's a light coming. Jesus says, I'm that light. And the psalmist says, he comes to those walking in the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. Perhaps that's some homework for us. Darkness in Isaiah's day, darkness of David's valley, and darkness that Jesus stepped into on that first Christmas morning when the fullness of time had come. We're all the same. And my phone's ringing. Y'all should turn your phones off before. I'll edit that out, and it'll be like it never happened. All right. Um, Matthew quoting Isaiah. Isaiah and David all using the same Hebrew word for shadow of death. And then John would come, and he'd switch to the Greek, but he'd use the same term. In him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. These passages are linked together. The theme of Jesus being God's light coming into the darkness that was mankind occurs from the Scriptures at the very beginning in Genesis all the way to Revelation. Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form, and darkness was over the face of the deep. There it is, darkness. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Revelation 21, 22, and I saw no temple in the city, For the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By it, light will the nations walk. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and the gates will never be shut day by day, and there will be no night there. One consistent theme in Scripture, from the very beginning to the very end, and everywhere in between, is that God is bringing His light into our darkness. And our darkness can't overcome it and his light will prevail. And in the end, his light shines and there will never be darkness again. Jesus, the light of the world, stepped into the spiritual darkness that Christmas morning and he began from that moment forward stomping out darkness with his light. It's an incredible image. And notice that something could be missed. This is not a light that they just walk into. It's not a light that covered the area they happen to be in. Notice how personal this is. On them, the light has shone. This light is a headlight, not a helicopter searchlight. It's not like God went around going, okay, well, shine the light and let's see who's okay. Oh, there's so and so. Okay. No. He specifically shines his light on each individual person. In each individual person's own personal darkness. How personal is it? Listen to Paul. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness. But now you're the light of the world. Lord, walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This light is very specific to each and every one of us. Isaiah said this, which, by the way, is being quoted in the previous verse. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, a thick darkness, the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you. And his glory will be seen upon you. And nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Now here's the interesting thing. That you is singular. That you is singular. He's not saying arise and shine for your light, meaning are everybody together. No, it's your specific light. You, sleeper, you, one person, you, person I'm talking to from God. You arise from your darkness because I'm shining my light on you. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Not y'all, you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the people, but the Lord will arise upon you. That's happening to everybody around you. God is shining his light on you. Notice how personal it is. The Lord will arrive and arise upon you. His glory will be seen upon you. Second person singular pronoun. Jesus' light shines on each of us individually. It's that personal. Because our darknesses are different. Isaiah says, you've multiplied the nations. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as joy at the harvest. And you're glad as they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken on the day of Midian. They had to be thinking, "What, what nation is he talking about? It can't be us. We're about to be destroyed. We're falling apart. We don't have any joy to increase. But he says, one day, this place that's being destroyed, one day, this nation that's being wiped out in my judgment is going to be celebrating like you've never seen before. The rejoicing occurs is similar to two events. He says, one is the harvest. Every year, when the harvest came, they all went to Jerusalem was a massive party. It was a great time. And it was the most joyful celebration each year. Isaiah saying, look, there's a day coming. I know today is dark. I know today is bad. There's a day coming when it's going to be like the harvest, when everybody's just full of joy and celebrating and hugging everybody. And second, it's going to be like, like Midian after Gideon won the battle. And remember the huge celebration they had? It was crazy. Everybody knows about that celebration. God fought. The people didn't have to fight. God delivered them for him. The yoke, the bar, the rod, all the weapons of oppression are going to be broken by God. Gideon didn't win the battle, God did. And what they're saying is there's a day coming when these people who are oppressing you, when they're wiping us out, when the darkness seems overwhelmed, there's going to be a day when everything gets turned to celebration. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What they're talking about is after a battle it was customary to take the sandals of the defeated warriors and all their bloody clothes and fuel the fire that burned everything. And what they're saying is, when this day comes, the war is over. We're celebrating. There's a day coming when God will bring his justice and his light to your darkness, and there's going to be a big party. In the midst of their darkness, after 400 years of silence, God says, I'm finally going to bring my light back. During the days of Isaiah, all they knew was God's wrath and sin. They didn't know. But the message was there's going to be a day, a special day, when Messiah would come. And God would identify his remnant. And throughout the land, there'll be a great victory celebration because of what the Messiah does. He tells them it'll be like Gideon. People pouring out into the streets. People hugging people they don't even know. People jumping in joy and dancing because everything is right. It'd be the same as saying to us, you know, the joy that happened when World War II entered at Times Square in New York. Remember the people, how crazy they were? It's going to be like that. I mean, imagine your nation's being wiped out and desolate and God says, look, but there's a day coming when we're going to be back in the streets celebrating God. And God gives them this hope at the very time that in his justice, he's having to make their darkness dark. Love that about God. Yeah, i got to bring punishment. I've got to hold my justice, but I still love you. And I want you to know there's a day of hope coming when everything will be set right. You see, the arrival of God on earth came more like a whimper than a massive celebration. Jesus was born one night to very few witnesses. But today, looking back, we miss the excitement of that first Christmas morning. The reason his arrival was good news of great joy is that after a century of silence, after darkness that just kept getting darker, God kept his promise. God hadn't forgot about his people. God stepped into his creation. God was with them. He's Emmanuel. God's also with them for them, still loving, caring, and faithful. See, the arrival of Jesus that morning told the world, particularly the Jewish world, that God really was going to set things right, that he would restore his remnant, that he would keep his promise to Abraham, that he would once again, like in the desert with Moses, dwell with his people. To the Jewish people at the time of his birth, they had no idea what Jesus would do. They didn't know about the miracles. They didn't know the blind were going to see. They didn't know what crucifixion even meant. What the prophets had spoken didn't make a lot of sense. Many people had given up on them. Many people said, it's not, he's not coming. There's no Messiah to come. All they knew, all they needed to know in that moment was God's faithful. The Messiah is here and the future once again has a bright light. You see, before Jesus spoke his first human word, God had already spoken to the entire world through his arrival. He shall be called Emmanuel because God really is with us now, emotionally, physically, and most of all, spiritually. We miss this understanding of Christmas because we know the outcome. Each year we watch the rerun in our heads, but for those seeing God's promise as it was occurring, to those who understood the significance Jesus' arrival brought enormous emotions. Just like his second return is going to for us. Imagine the day when Jesus returns to us. Think about what's going to be happening. Think about what will happen in this room. Think about what's going to happen in our neighborhoods on Facebook. It's going to light up. Jesus is back. Jesus is here. God's promises are true. I knew it. I knew it. After all the years of hearing people denounce our God, walk around without fear of God, hearing people say he doesn't exist, he's never coming back, after years of hearing people defame him and chastise us, after years of hearing people deny his truth, his existence, his sovereignty, after years of hearing that churches don't matter, that praying is forbidden and teaching his truth is criminal, Jesus returns just like he promised he would. I knew it. I think we're going to be running around hugging and dancing and worshiping and telling each other it's true. I knew it was true. God is faithful. He keeps his promises. No matter how dark it gets, the light shines. He does love us. All the trials, all the struggles, all the ridicule, all the suffering, it's all worth it. Because he is Emmanuel. And he is God. And he is with us. And he's with us emotionally, physically, and spiritually. And now it's forever for all of eternity. When Jesus comes back the next time, it's done. When you connect with the emotion of his second coming, spend some time this week thinking about what you're going to do when he comes back. And then you're going to begin to understand what it meant to those in the first century when he came the first time. The people who've walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as joy at the harvest. Christmas. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let's pray. God, forgive us when we miss the wonder. Forgive us, God, when we think we're watching some rerun. Forgive us, God, when we fail to connect with what it meant when that baby showed up on this earth that morning. God, help us this Christmas to see Jesus through first century eyes, to see the wonder, to understand the depth of their darkness, to understand how desperate they were to hear from you. God, we too are a sinful people. We too are a people who turned from you. Our nation's going to get darker and darker. Your word tells us that. And in those dark moments, you tell us about hope. That one day Jesus will come back. That one day his light will shine and it's going to shine this time forever. So God, we look forward to that day as they look forward to the first Christmas morning. Thank you, God, for bringing your light into this darkness and making sure the darkness could never, ever overcome it. God, would you make your light shine in our darkness too? Would you teach us to walk in the light? Would you make sure that we, in our little world, our little circle, shine your light everywhere we go? Because everywhere around us is dark. We love you, we thank you for Christmas, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the light. We thank you that you're a God who keeps promises. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.